No, that's not our regular intro music. But yes, this is Talking Apes. That rhythmic African marimba beat would normally introduce you to the Pangolin Podcast, a podcast created by host Jack Baker. In the same way that we created Talking Apes to keep you connected to conservation through large sentient beings, apes like us, Jack took the opposite approach. Pangolin explores the underappreciated conservation stories and species. It now features over 100 podcasts highlighting pioneering conservationists at the forefront of wildlife protection. The show features every kind of story, no matter how small, strange, or unexpected. And Jack does a joyous, enthusiastic job of bringing those stories to life. We invited Jack on to discuss why these stories rarely, if ever, make the news and how podcasting goes about changing that narrative. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our Patreon members program. We also receive production support from nonprofit Globio. If you'd like to support Talking Apes, you can do so by logging onto our website at talkingapes.org. And now my guest, Anglin podcast host, Jack Baker. Hey, Jack. Welcome to Talking Apes. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's so nice to finally get to sit down and, and yeah, chat to you and, and be a guest on someone else's podcast. I'm excited. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's going to be, this is kind of fun because um, having uh, another podcast host on to talk to a podcast host is kind of a foreign thing for me as well. We usually have a primatologist or a virologist or somebody else on the other side of the mic. So this will be great. Mm-hmm. And it's always good because, you know, podcasters can talk for hours. So, you know, it could be a long one, folks. I don't know. Yeah. Bu- buckle in. If you're on a, dr- if you're, if you're in your car and you're on a drive, maybe just settle. In. Hopefully it's a three, four, five hour drive. Just settle in. And here we go. Actually, I wanted to start with, uh, one of the last times I saw you was at where we first met actually was at a conference in, um, Arizona and, we uh, we were both. It was a, an environmental conference, and we were both presenting there, and we met. But but th- the last time I actually have this vivid memory of you was you hugging a cactus. <laughs> that's yeah, that's fair. That's my last vivid memory of Arizona as well. Like the the the, the memory that has sustained the longest and clearest in my mind. Um, well, pardon the pun, but it was a really pointed moment for me that you you, 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 you went, okay. We won't do, we won't do that too many times in this podcast. Uh, no, but it, seriously, it was. We had gone out on a, a bird walk early that morning, and uh, one of the people that was on the bird walk was a naturalist, and she was explained to us, I think, how you can, you can actually, these, these were saguaro cactuses. So they're the, for those of you who are familiar with your, your, your cactus, uh, they're the kind of giant ones that look like men standing in the desert or something with their arms up and in every cowboy Western. And anyway, she explained that you could actually hug one gently and they wouldn't, they wouldn't poke you, but you could also, the, the very cool thing, I think, and that's what you did initially, what you were you were kind of strumming the needles on the cactus and it was it was an interesting sound coming off of it. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because, yeah, it was kind of being explained that like, yeah, you can kind of 
pluck them almost like you'd pluck a guitar string and each of them each of these needles will play a different slightly different note and it was such a yeah a beautiful incredible thing and then obviously you can go in and give them a hug and the story behind that as well of kind of this connection to nature because the story is of the local people is that these kind of cacti represent their ancestors and the ancestors of the desert and kind of all of these people who have come before and so they when they pass away they kind of become these cacti the reason it's a lasting memory for me is not just hearing this uh this kind of noise but also having that connective moment with nature i think was so so fantastic so so fantastic. that's an, a great segue actually is connection to nature because i think that's why both of us decided to become podcast hosts is it's finding those connections and trying to find those aha moments for for other people so yeah for anyone who doesn't know my name is is jack i am the host of pangolin the conservation podcast um which is a show that's kind of all about these kind of underappreciated conservation stories so it started kind of about the pangolin then it grew arms and legs and it's the pangolin has come to represent for me this kind of banner species for all of those creatures and plants and groups of people, all of those things that have these amazing stories that don't get told or get misrepresented in media and all of these things. So it's it's about kind of celebrating them and really telling those stories that aren't normally told. And so, yeah, those aha moments are so consistent for me because I purposefully pick stories and guests a lot of the time that like even I don't, like I'll do my research about them, but even I don't know everything about them and I don't like... I don't. I know. I only know a small pro, like portion of the information that's out there about them going in, and so I consistently have these aha moments that bring me closer to nature, which I think is kind of exciting for me, and also I hope exciting for the audience who are there to kind of also experience that like connective moment and wow kind of moment as well. Yeah, I found that to be so true in, in doing in doing this. Is like somebody asked me. You know, because I came from a, a film photography background, that's most of my career has been as a filmmaker. And to come into this, and they said, "This is kind of strange. You, you're not. There's no film here. We're just talk talking to one another." I said, "But yeah, it has been the most incredible journey, though, to get to talk to these amazing people. And I learn every single time. I learn so much about this planet and about the creatures on this planet. Why? Why did you choose?" Why did you choose pangolins and what, what gravitated you to the idea of the, telling these smaller unknown stories? I suppose like when I try and I think about it, it, it goes back probably like, like, I don't know, I, I probably throughout my whole life, I, I have always had this love of stories and good stories, whether they be kind of like Greek myths, whether they be historical stories, whether they be fiction stories and books that I've read or conservation stories. I've always had this love for kind of telling stories and kind of sharing passion for kind of the stories that I tell. Like I really loved telling stories and kind of that aspect of it. And I've always alongside that kind of had this love for wildlife and nature. And I think the best stories to me are the ones that are about the underdog, are about the things that people don't know about. They're the new stories, they're the exciting stories. They're the ones that kind of, for me anyway, I've been like the most gripping and kind of exciting as I've kind of grown. So I kind of I guess all of that feeds in and then it kind of got to this point where I was kind of like my my I don't know this I think this is a very Scottish phrase of like I don't know maybe it's UK I don't know but like people say I have the gift of the gab which means I talk too much basically it's a very polite way of saying I talk too much so I think it got to this point where I kind of had this kind of love of nature had this love of kind of 
underappreciated kind of stories kind of brought them together. And then during the pandemic, I was kind of set this task of producing a podcast series as part of a university assignment. And so I was looking for this lead character, this lead kind of story. And around that time, obviously, with the pandemic, there was all of this misinformation swirling around about the pangolin and how it may be connected to COVID and all that sort of stuff. And so I wanted to kind of bring all of this together and kind of use a a podcast platform to tell a story about kind of an underappreciated story about this pangolin, this wonderful creature. And so, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, where it came from. It kind of, yeah, has grown from there and grown and grown and grown into this thing where now we talk about all of these underappreciated stories and try and kind of get them the attention and the love that, that they deserve. I always say on the show, like, we try and not focus on charismatic megafauna as we kind of think. But then even then, we've had episodes on things like the giraffe. Because I do think sometimes, I do like to go to these big popular species sometimes because... Their stories are told, but they're not always told in the most accurate or authentic way. And so talking to people from the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, for example, about the fact that they are undergoing a silent extinction, despite the fact you see them everywhere and people love giraffes and they're kind of this big charismatic, wow, everybody grows up knowing what a giraffe is. They do have this kind of story that people don't know. So yeah, it's it's kind of... Yeah, we do kind of come at it from that smaller, underappreciated thing, but it doesn't stop me occasionally wandering off into other territory. (laughs) Um, Speaking of giant things like giraffes, or how do you approach larger conservation issues? We try to find the guests that can articulate new perspectives on that and, and new ideas on that. But ultimately, we're trying to get across, I guess, different perspectives on the same issues that keep rolling around, rolling around so that they do have that, wow, I didn't think of it from that direction moment, especially when you're dealing with species that people don't know. Obviously, you can tell clever stories like you were just mentioning. Take the pangolin, for example. I mean, that whole connection to the, why not just wipe them all out? I mean, I literally heard that comment about bats and pangolins. Somebody in a a media story was saying, I don't know why we just don't kill them all if that's where the disease is coming from. It's a really tricky one because I think on, like, there's a couple of ways that I can, I kind of approach it. And I can, a couple of ways I can approach the question, I guess, I suppose as well, because I have this kind of, so half of me is kind of this podcast life. And then the other half is like, I've worked in botanic gardens and zoos and aquariums, kind of engaging people face-to-face one-on-one on these things. So, There's a couple different ways, like on the podcast, the way that I kind of try and tackle these bigger issues is kind of like in some series, for example, I will have a kind of a whole series structured around the pangolin or we did a whole series structured around Madagascar. I'm currently producing a whole um, kind of series structured around conservation stories in Africa. And, And the point of those series, I guess, is to try and talk to as many different people with as many different perspectives on this one issue as possible and try and create kind of this rounded take on everything. Whether you agree with one of the people, whether you agree with all of the people, whether you agree with none of them, it's to try and create this rounded take on like, okay, well, this is the issue from as many different perspectives as possible. And the people that I interview might not even agree with one another, but try and just try and, I don't know, kind of rationalize it and get all of that information and present it to people and let them kind of take it, digest on it, and hopefully take away some kind of positive message at the end. I always ask my guests for bits of advice if people want to get more involved and try and break it down even with it. So we kind of take it from this bigger level, but then we break it down and kind of get them to think, well, what can I do in my own life to kind of affect these things and just kind of improve understanding while also kind of, yeah, providing actionable advice. And I suppose working face to face with people, it's very similar, but 
it's sometimes a lot easier to try and like, because I suppose when you're talking on a podcast, you're talking into a void. You don't know who's going to pick that up and you don't know who's going to listen. And once you get an idea of the audience, you kind of maybe have an inkling like, oh, they'll find this more interesting or they'll find this take more interesting. But it, it is still very much a void. Whereas with when you're face to face with people in a setting like a botanic garden, for example, I like to chat to people. I like to get to know people a little bit. And I like to try and make things really relatable to their day-to-day -day lives and try and get them to think like, what are the birds maybe you see in your garden and get them to think about the way that those birds, how they can protect those birds and then how those birds connect to a larger issue or whatever it is. And try and instead of build it up in this kind of big way, start really small in the face-to-face -face and build like, and try and get them to understand it on that level as well. So it's really a tricky, it's a really tricky question. It's one that I think is the ultimate question of kind of conservation is how do we tackle these things? But that's kind of how I go about approaching it. And I guess hopefully, and I, I do think you do see a change, like for, I will get people messaging or sending kind of reviews in or whatever it is on the podcast side, just saying like, thank you so much for this. Like I've applied for a job now in this field because I was really intrigued by what you said and the advice that the person who you were interviewing gave was, it was really interesting. And so I really want to kind of go and pursue this as a career. So that's kind of, to me, like a big success. And I've like, yes, we've tackled this kind of bigger issue in a small way that the podcast can. And then face to face, I kind of look for those moments of like, like when you're talking to a kid and you just see that spark in their eye, like when you're talking to them, for example, I remember working at Edinburgh Zoo over the summer and talking to a little girl about flamingos and she came in dressed in all pink and kind of, you know, that way that kids kind of saunter up to something and they kind of swing from side to side and they look at something and you can tell she was kind of like, oh, that's quite whatever. And like, and then you kind of go to them and you're like, oh, what's your favorite color? Knowing full well this child that is a big pink ball is going to say pink and they're like oh I like pink and you're like I think the flamingo's favorite color might be pink as well do you know why they're pink and get them to like think about like what is actually quite a complicated scientific thing and like but it's actually when you simplify it down really something they can relate to and fall in love with so it is it's about finding those relational things on that personal level as well that actually brings up a thought as you were speaking about zoo conservation and talking about, as you were talking about creating a, a series that allows people to see things from different perspectives. Zoo conservation is one that we've looked at tackling on a couple of occasions and trying to get people to talk about because it can be very contentious for some people. I mean, because you get people from both sides of the fence and especially keeping large sentient beings in a zoo like apes, people who have very strong feelings about that. How have you approached that? in terms of zoos versus wild? Mm -hmm. I think I think that's a really interesting way to have phrased it as well, is because I, uh, the question itself is kind of the way you phrased it. I'm like, I don't see it as zoos versus wild. In my mind, I see them all as part of this big sphere of conservation and they can all work as kind of these tools within that sphere, hopefully to promote a healthier, happier, better place for people and animals and plants and all of these things to thrive. And I really think that seeing them as like this versus kind of dynamic is really not the way I like to see it. And I think that kind of brings up in my, like, I, I think the discussion often gets heated. And I think it's something that gets brought up time and time again. And, and people, it, it, it often, unfortunately, goes down to people just kind of yelling at each other. But what I think we really need to do is realize, okay, all of us want the same goal. Let's sit down and have these discussions. Let's work out how the people who believe that zoos should be shut down and don't work and how the people who believe 
that they are perfect tools for education and fundraising and things. How can they work together? Um, and for me, I fall on the side of like, I do believe zoos are an important tool in the world of conservation. I don't think that I would be where I am talking to you and going to Arizona and having my podcast and kind of doing a PhD now on the impact of kind of living collections on the climate and biodiversity crisis if I hadn't grown up going to local zoos, seeing the animals, forming these like connections. And But what I should say is that like I don't agree with all zoos. I don't think that that gives everybody a pass to just keep animals in kind of habitats within cities or whatever it is. I do think that while I agree with the concept, they have to be run in a really appropriate manner. I think there are some zoos that I have visited myself and even walked away from and gone, there's a couple things here I don't that don't sit right with me. And I'll make sure that I talk to people at the time and just say like, hi, I like have a knowledge of zoos. Like I work in a zoo. I wondered and just try and ask the questions like why are things and just get them kind of engaged in the conversation. And I do think there are arguments on both sides. And I do think, as I say, I do fall kind of in this camp of like, they, sh they should exist if they put funding into conservation, if they provide kind of reading programs that are assisting in conservation, if they have effective education programs and community building programs, if they meet all of the standards of whatever the, the country's kind of their regulatory board has. So like for, the, in, for instance, in the UK, we have BIASA, which has all these kind of rules that zoos have to and standards that zoos have to meet. I think in the US, you guys have, is it AZA and like there's a couple others? It's AZA mm. primarily, yeah. Yeah, so like as long as they meet all those standards and provide that kind of funding and, and education, I don't have a problem with zoos and I think they are largely the reason why I am interested in conservation and they're largely the reason why a lot of people I know who are interested in conservation are where they are. So I I think there's, yeah, there's a there's a there's an interesting discussion to be had, but that's kind of where I fall in terms of that. Said. Well, I, I posed it to you as a versus question because that's how I think so many people see it. I do agree with you. It is part of a greater toolbox. And I think the lines between the two have also gotten uh, less clear in the last couple of decades because one of the things, and we've had a number of guests on our podcast that represent sanctuaries in the wild or semi-wild sanctuaries, especially with apes and primates, the relationship that those sanctuaries have is they have animals in captivity. They, in many cases, especially with great apes, they can't go back into the wild. Yet more and more, they're dependent on either relationships with zoos in Europe or Australia or the United States, Canada, whatever, for some of their funding. Many of them started without any relationship to visitors, and now they all are entering into this quasi-zoo. I don't know what you call it. And so they're beginning to blur the lines. So they become yet another piece in all of this. And like, where are we in that line between, I think it can start with large sentient beings, elephants, apes, that kind of thing. But, you know, it goes all the way down to, to pangolins or, you know, smaller creatures that people normally start going, well, that, I mean, they're so small, it really doesn't matter. But it does. It does matter on our perceptions. It's something that I think a lot about in terms of like, so I, th I think a lot of the, the arguments and the things that kind of surround zoos come from the fact that people don't necessarily know what goes on behind the scenes. It goes on in places like those sanctuaries that you're mentioning. And then see like the blurring of the lines is happening because a lot of good zoos that exist around kind of the world 
for example, I'm going to use the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, Edinburgh Zoo, just because that's where I work. I'm familiar with some examples. Like there are research that goes on there with kind of genetic research, the research that goes on behind the scenes in terms of breeding partula snails, um, the pine hoverfly, like all these little invertebrates that people don't think about and don't necessarily kind of like the people who would maybe argue against uh, a zoo existing wouldn't know and wouldn't care about a fly. But the research that goes on there and the awareness raising that goes on there kind of helps to bring this love and awareness to to underappreciated strange little creatures, as well as the fact that they will breed larger creatures. There's bison reintroductions going on across across Europe, for example, with bison that are bred in captivity in kind of zoos. There are kind of success stories of things like the Arabian oryx, um, the Shavalsky's horse, um, Pierre David's deer, like all of these things that have been success stories because of, of zoos. And I think it's an interesting kind of thing that I, I think people don't necessarily know about those successes and they should, and they should be celebrated because when they're celebrated, if you, that will encourage hopefully more zoos to get on board with those types of projects and put more of the funding and more of the focus into them. Um, and I do think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I am, I'm always really intrigued. Like for example, when we were in, um, in Arizona, I made an effort to go and visit Phoenix Zoo, Reed Park Zoo, the local zoos there, kind of find out what they were involved in. Because I always think it's an it's an interesting way to find out about those kind of like I always like to find out about those behind the scenes things as well. And you don't really get necessarily a lot of chat about that on social media sometimes or whatever it is. But when you go, you find out about I think it was Phoenix who were breeding for release um, desert pupfish. I think was one of them. Um, different types of frog, different types of kind of ferret and mammals. So I do think all of these things go on behind the scenes, and people just don't necessarily no and I, I i don't know where i was going with this but that's kind of the the gist of i, what I think I was where you're going say. is you're thinking about starting a new podcast <laughs> which is like behind the scenes yeah. zoos or you know, something it's like maybe you could tell that story which is i think is a really interesting i think it's a it's a really i, I want to say hopeful story for those people who think they can't do anything about this i mean you, earlier you mentioned the fact that you try to give people you try to ask your guests like what is what can people do sort of at home um to change the thing and and i think it's a it's sort of a worn out question in some ways because people go oh here we go with uh, you know i can turn my lights off at night so that i'm not wasting electricity kind of thing and that just sounds really boring but i think you did something really fascinating because well go ahead you tell the story about working on you know to work on your degree and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so yeah, we, it, the the whole podcast kind of started during the the pandemic. I kind of as I'd said had this interest in kind of doing some kind of communication with conservation and it had always been something I was interested in is kind of this storytelling and whether it be I, I was kind of unsure about like documentary or like tele, taking photographs or podcasts, whatever it was, I was kind of unsure. And I kind of had led up to this this point where during my master's, as, instead of producing a traditional kind of dissertation format, they had asked me to produce kind of like a, a creative portfolio. So they said, you can write 15,000 words or whatever it was, or you can do this. And I was like, yes, that is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to create a short film all about the pangolin and it's going to be fantastic. I had field work to Namibia plan. It was going to be brilliant. Um, it was going to be just, yeah, in my mind, this big, amazing thing. And then, of course, time ticked on and start planning started happening. Um, and the week before I was meant to fly to Namibia to do all of these things, all of these things, COVID 
numbers shot up, lockdowns started to come in, it spread across Europe, it spread across the UK and everything shut down and everything stopped and everything was kind of like, no, we're not flying, we can't go. There was a debate at one point about like, oh, well, if we get there, maybe if we get there, we'll be allowed to stay until we need to fly back and all this sort of stuff. But it was just like, no, we're not not risking it we're not doing anything you are insured by the university and they cannot <laughs> risk anything like that flying you across the world so you will stay here and i kind of went through this moment of kind of like oh like insert preferred expletive there oh no um, <laughs> um i can't like i don't know what to like everything has gone wrong like i felt so defeated and kind of like before i'd even started i was kind of like i can't do this and i can't do that and i can't do can't do can't do, can't do, can't do and it kind of was this thing where like i just was yeah letting myself be defeated in this moment and i think a lot of us were and it was a feeling that i think especially as someone who worked in a zoo like you're so used to going out and talking to people being out and chatting and like doing this education work that you're kind of to have all of that taken away and then to have Namibia taken away and to have all of these things and friends that I'd made have to fly home to various countries and like to be sat alone in a flat by yourself and kind of being like, I have nothing that I thought was going to be now. It, it's all gone. was kind of like, ah, but it, it, after a while I started realizing that I can't sit here and I can't feel sorry for myself. We've got to push forward, kept kind of, doing the research, kept doing everything that was going forward and going on and kind of realised that actually this provides a new exciting opportunity because because everybody is, as awful as it was, because everybody is at home and everybody is bored and looking for conversation and looking for connection somehow, I have these people around me who I can maybe have access to that I never would have normally. So I shot out some emails, I kind of tried to contact people who had interesting backgrounds and interesting things and was kind of like... I have always loved podcasting. I was going to create a short film. Would anyone like to have a chat with me on this kind of podcast platform all about the pangolin? We're going to kind of do six episodes, one on trafficking, one on kind of working in the field with pangolins, one on wet markets. And it, it, it opened up this kind of global opportunity for me to sit down and talk to people. And I think it was it was so exciting and then it kind of grew, grew arms and legs and it i think i was meant to produce one podcast and as i say i was like i'm not doing that i'm producing a whole series i'm locked in my house i have nothing else to do so it did all this stuff and i produced it all and and during that time i think i actually like I, we were still getting feedback for various other bits of coursework and things and i had a a professor kind of turn around and say to me, well, the way you're approaching this and the way that you're approaching conservation as kind of a concept is actually very childish and very kind of overly positive and very, you should be taking this more, way more seriously. You should be kind of not having a lot, you should be like being very serious about everything you, you, you do in this field. And that kind of then re-demotivated me because I was like, oh, well, just as I found this motivation again, I've been told that the motivation, the way that I talk, which is clearly for all of you listening, very animated, very kind of passionate, is is not the right way to go about conservation. It has to be hard science, it has to be all of these things and all of this kind of, yeah, seriousness. I think what really annoyed me was the fact that he called all my work childish because it was like took a positive spin on things. And I was like, I think like it really demotivated. It was kind of like, well, the dream of like conservation in this com conservation communication in this positive way clearly doesn't work, and like all this sort of stuff. So it gone from like super motivated, demotivated, super motivated, demotivated again. And then my supervisor from my university, I handed all of this stuff into her, and she kind of was like, "What are you? 
no, the the magic and the joy and the wonder that you have that's like almost childlike for nature and conservation, that's the magic. That's the thing that people who criticize you for being childish or people who criticize you for not taking things seriously enough, that's the thing they often lose is this wonder and this like fascination with the wildlife that like is it's so hard to capture and so hard to maintain. So what you need to do is hold on to it and protect it and protect that little flame inside you. No matter what goes on, no matter how hard conservation gets, no matter the fact you're talking about trafficking or of mammals or whether you're talking about a pandemic or you're talking about something bad, keep that flame of wonder and joy alive inside you because that's the powerful thing. And that's the thing that I think pushed the the kind of project to its completion. I kind of graduated. It got very good marks. I was very happy. It then kind of, that was the spark that kind of let me posting it online because I was like, well, I've produced this now and I'm excited by it and it has this wonder and I want other people to have that excitement. And so it then, and that's the ball that's kept me rolling from then. Um, and I should, my supervisor who told me that was Dr. Monique McKenzie. She is fabulous. And she gave me that advice of like, keep that joy. And I think that's been the powerful thing that's kept with me. And it's the thing that I carry with me now going into interviews and everything that I do is like, I want to carry that joy with me, but also spread that kind of joy and wonder and like enthusiasm for wildlife with as many people as I can. Um, and it's, yeah. Why I wanted you to talk about that is because it's such an interesting take on what happened during the pandemic. I think so many people just, they didn't know what to do and you flipped it on its head so beautifully and took this joy and passion. I mean, yeah, you were about to go off on the adventure. I don't know if you'd traveled overseas or traveled to Africa, but you're about to go off to Namibia for God's sake. That's yeah, pretty exciting. I, it was, And I can tell you, like, I have been to South Africa once. I have still in my life never seen a pangolin. And I'm still as enthusiastic to this day, having not seen one about as, as I would have if I've flown there, because it is this, this, yeah, this thing that you have to protect is this passion for it. And I think this animal, this wonderful, fabulous, amazing animal that is so special to me has it granted me all of these opportunities and like this animal that I think so many for so many people represented during the pandemic a bad thing as a kind of you are the cause of this I've tried everything I can to to reverse that story because it's not its fault it has nothing to do with the pangolin really the start of the pandemic and in fact it's the reason that I have had all of these fun successes over the last few years it's the reason that I'm so inspired today and I think it's yeah, it's it's been this mission now to like reverse this and maybe one day I'll see one and go on the adventure of a lifetime to go and visit one. But so far, it's just been a very successful long distance relationship of like it's it's somewhere in Africa or across in Asia. And I, I'll go and find it one day. Yeah, they are fantastic little creatures. And Jack, I do hope you get to see one. I was lucky enough to see one um, this last trip to Cameroon and do some filming of it. Hey, Jack, as you know, we need to take a little break and invite assistant producer Demel Zaban in and talk about some of the folks that have been supporting us all along. So hi, Demelza. So lovely to have Jack's smiling face here in the studio with us today. We actually did a webinar with Jack a few weeks ago for the North American Association for Environmental Education. And it's sort of a behind the scenes look at all the work that goes in creating our podcasts. So um, if any of our listeners would like to watch that webinar, it's available on our website under the blog section. 
I've got a couple of our lovely, lovely listener reviews to read out today. We've got one from Katazina who said it was so refreshing to hear Susie Esterhaz on episode 22. When it comes to global crises like endangered animals and climate change, I think the idea of proactivity, positivity and optimism is so important. She also says she'd love to hear Franz de Waal on a future episode. That is a fantastic suggestion and we would love to have him on the show. Thank you, Katasina. We've also got one from Cindy Marlowe. She said it was fascinating to hear the progression of Jerry's career in the episode about Jerry um, and also his growth as a person who exhibits such a passion for conservation. Thank you for those really kind comments. Uh, Cindy, by the way, is one of our Patreon subscribers. Now, if you didn't know, Patreon is a membership program where for as little as $3 a month, you can support us towards the administrative costs of making this podcast happen. And in return, you get not only our undying love and appreciation, but you can also access rewards, like you'll get a membership certificate and even access to bonus episodes. We are a non-profit, so we truly, truly appreciate the kind support of our donors. If you head over to our website, talkingapes.org, and click the link top right that says become a patron, you can learn more. Please also keep the reviews and comments coming in on social media. They give us a big smile and they let us know we're doing a good job. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Demelza. That, um, it's great to hear from everybody. And yes, Franz Duvall, we are working to get Franz on the podcast. So we'll let everyone know as soon as we have some dates and we can figure that all out. You know, I want to get back with you, Jack, because... Um, as we were talking about, the pandemic really changed the way things were. And Jack, I wanted to ask you, did you experience that with the people that you started talking to? Did your podcast come to them as almost an outlet for their energy, for their their passion, for their conservation? Because we, we've heard that out of a couple of our guests that when everything locked down, they went into lockdown and then they went, wait, I can't stay in lockdown. I have to still keep pursuing this, this, you know, conserving this animal or protecting this thing. I still have to keep doing that. Have you heard that out of your guests as all? Well? The good thing about interviewing people who are passionate about wildlife and conservation and science and all of these things is that once you sit a microphone in front of them, they can talk for hours. Like no matter what the topic is, no matter what the species is, no matter who it is, you put a microphone down, they will talk for days. And I think during the pandemic, that was heightened even more of like, we're we're still passionate about this, but we're not able to really do anything about it. And so it kind of, yeah, you had this pent up like energy of like, I need to talk to somebody. And like, obviously when the conversations needed to be serious, you took it very seriously and you you like, I'm not going to sit and laugh about certain topics that are just not funny. And I'm not, and I'm going to allow myself to be hit emotionally. And I'm going to allow, I think I had people write in after the first season and say, I cried at certain points and I was upset by certain things. And like, those are all natural things, but the energy and the enthusiasm should still persist through those things. You shouldn't allow them to be defeated. And I think all the people I spoke to, all the people who were kind of locked up, like we all were kind of, they still had that passion, despite the fact they were dealing with the difficult stuff. So it was great to kind of talk to them about it all. It was, it was fantastic. Have you seen your audience change or have you seen the way people think change in your responses and things to your podcast since things have opened back up and you know that mm-hmm. that time is not there i think so in terms of like guest speaking i think i still have the enthusiasm that of people and i still have the kind of like passion is all still there i think 
there is this weirdness now of like, we don't want to talk about COVID. We don't have to talk about COVID if we don't want to, but we don't kind of, I don't force anybody to sit down and, and say like, what did you do during the pandemic? I think for a long time, the first, second and third kind of seasons of the podcast really were dominated by this theme because season one kind of was produced during, well, they were all produced kind of in various stages of lockdown. And so the first one focused around the pangolin, obviously, was very COVID centric at points because of the story that was going on. Season two was just about some under, was, it was about kind of underappreciated conservation stories. And so some of the, they were smaller projects that were impacted. And season three was about Madagascar and different projects that were going on there. So researchers couldn't get in. There was very different kind of travel rules there than there was to the UK that I was chatting about people with. And kind of, you had those kind of, um, the the kind of impacts on local communities and kind of all of these different tourist organisations and stuff that were based there. So it has been a consistent, maybe underlying theme for a while, but that passion I have found has never gone away from anybody. Like the people who care about wildlife really care about wildlife and they want to talk about it and they want to do their important work no matter what's going on. And I think what's been nice about the last season and this upcoming season is we have now transitioned more into talk or less into talking about COVID and the pandemic and things, but the enthusiasm hasn't subsided still. They, there is still like an enthusiasm to sit down on a, la a laptop and talk to somebody from halfway across the world about your work because people are proud of their work and they should be proud of their work because they're doing the most important, some of the most, what I would consider to be the most important jobs in the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's been nice. And in terms of guests and, or in terms of listeners, I suppose, like, yeah, um, I would say the listenership has changed in the, during the pandemic. It started very... I don't know whether it was the same for you with this kind of show, but it it started with me with kind of a very local crowd. It was very UK centric at the beginning. And now it has reached the the podcast has been streamed in 99 countries, almost 100. So if you're if you're somewhere that like I've posted all the lists of countries on social media. So if you're in a country, you go and look at those lists and you're in a country that's not featured yet. Go and listen to Pangolin so we can get it up to the third figure. Um, but no, it's been listened to in over 100 countries, um, thousands of times, thousands of people. Um, and these like in countries that like, I have never visited. I never dreamed that I would even have the opportunity to have my voice heard in. Um, and that's exciting, not just for me, I suppose, but it's exciting because the guests, they're the interesting ones. They're the ones with the interesting stories. And the fact that this little platform that I created during the pandemic is allowing their stories to be told, is allowing their stories to reach new people and allowing them to connect with new audiences, with each other, with like, with different kind of communities around the world is, is so exciting and, and so rewarding and really keeps me energized to keep going. So there has been a change, but it's it's always been positive change for me. Yeah, I mean, that's what I find so fascinating about this platform is that the minute we we publish this, it's open to everybody. I mean, it's it's out there. It's flying around the internet, right? And and so even though in the beginning you were you were doing it for in the UK and you were sort of tight. Now ours was different because so many of our guests are, they're all over the planet. Um, and so from the very beginning, they were sort of spread out. And fortunately, you know, I, I was lucky in that I'd had this multiple decade of filming and working in the field. So I already had a lot of those connections that we could, we could lean on. And like you said earlier, they were, they were eager to talk. 
It's interesting to hear the evolution of your podcast and how it's moved forward. Where do you see it going? Now, I mean, obviously, you, it's it's you now. It's like, you know, doing this podcast, Pangolin or some other iteration of it is you. You found this voice for yourself. How how do you see it evolving for you? I guess that's that's a very good, that's a very deep question. That could go in many directions. I suppose for me, like the project itself, like I can... I I can see myself producing episodes of Pangolin for a very 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 long time because I can I will never get bored of having conversations about fascinating things with fascinating people. I will never ever find that dull and I'll never get bored of it. And I'll never think it's not important to have those conversations because I think I, I can only learn and I can only grow and I the more people that I talk to the more the community grows around it and the more this kind of shared knowledge grows not just for me, but for everybody else. And the more kind of people can kind of come into it. So I, I I can see myself continuing it for a very long time and talking to as many people as I can. Um, and so really there's not kind of a, a long-term goal. I, I guess in the immediate term, I'm producing a new series. It's all about Africa and conservation across the continent of Africa, celebrating stories from all across the continent about certain species or different ways of working and just trying to like think about that continent as a whole because it's it's one that we did a series on Madagascar but it, and we did an episode I realize now all the examples I've used throughout the episode have been very Africa centric but aside from those like we haven't actually touched that continent really as a whole I've talked to a lot of people in Australia and Asia and kind of North and South America and Europe but not really Africa and I think I really wanted to get in and kind of celebrate the diversity of work that goes on and the diversity of species and stuff that are there so that's kind of the short-term goal is to produce that um, and to continue to kind of help provide a platform for interesting stories that people can can find um, I guess on a, a personal level I think it kind of for me the the podcast like it serves this greater purpose of like educating people and reaching people. I think for me, like I want to use it. I I, I don't know. I, I, it's kind of this, it means a lot to me now. And I just want to see it like blossom and continue to grow because I would do it if no one listened, but seeing people listen is like find the biggest reward. And so I don't know. I don't, I, I guess personally, it just is a, it's a real passion project and it's something that I believe so wholeheartedly. And I think especially like, the more I learn about conservation, the more I kind of do my PhD, I'm thinking about impact and all sorts of things. And I think that like, yeah, I just want to continue to become the best version of myself as possible. And, and by listening to other people and hearing these stories and knowing when to shut up and when to talk and when to do all these things, I feel like by learning all of that, I only become a better conservationist and a better person. So yeah, there is that kind of bigger goal that I'd like to see it reach as many people and have the stories go as wide as possible. But also, personally, I'd like to, yeah, continue to grow and be as as best that I can be as well, because I really genuinely care about the stories and the planet and the creatures that we talk about. Have you seen yourself change from the beginning of when you first started doing the podcast and the way you approached them and what you were trying to get out of it. Have you seen that evolve in you now to the, like when you sit down to do a podcast, other than being more comfortable in doing it because you've done it so many times. I mean, what, what episode are you on now? I think, so I think I'm on episode 62 of the main series, but then I have bonus episodes about all sorts of stuff. So I think I've put out, I think we're almost at episode 100 if we were to count all the little bonus episodes and things that are up there. So there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot of them there. Yep. 
What's a podcast that you want to do that you haven't done? What's a subject or a person or both? If I was to pick like a dream, dream guest and people to talk to, I I feel like it's such a, like there's a, the really basic one, I think would be, of course, everybody would love to sit down and talk to David Attenborough. Everybody would, because he's a hero and he's probably the reason or a big part of why I'm here. So he would be a big kind of person that I would want to speak to because I think he is just fantastic and a huge inspiration. I think if I was to go for another big name, I would kind of pick, like, I would want to speak to Terry Irwin. I grew up loving the Irwins. I found them to be fascinating. And I think she is a consistently impressive and amazing person who is so inspirational and has persevered, I think, through some of the hardest things that a person can go through to get to where she is um, and like still continues to run and, and kind of head this legacy of conservation that is so fantastic and inspirational to so many people. So I'd love to speak to her. But then I also like the big thing about the show is that like the exciting podcasts are the people that like don't usually have that platform. Those people have TV shows all the time. The, the interesting, the most interesting people are the people who don't usually get a platform. And like, those are the people that like, I want to talk to more than anybody else. So I think the answer is, I don't know. And I can't know until I find them because like for the Madagascar series, I had a lot of help from the Lemur Conservation Network to find conservationists I never would have heard of or never would have like has have never done media stuff before. So I never would have known that they were there. So like it's those people who are hidden away who are doing the most important work that don't get the spotlight that I think are the ones that I want to speak to. Um, And like what's been really helpful, I guess, like for we met at the the Tucson kind of environmental education conference and that what's been really helpful for me is kind of talking um, to some of the people who also received the 30 under 30 awards that the North American Association for Environmental Education give out. Like they have helped me to like find some really interesting people, like anywhere I can find interesting people, like those are the ones that I really want to talk to more than anybody else. Is there a subject? A subject? Oh, is there Mm -hmm. like, if there was one subject, I was thinking about this the other day in terms of our podcast, I was thinking like, I guess it's a two-part question. One is, is there a subject that you haven't touched on that you would really like to touch on? Now doing a, over, you know, all the podcasts that you've done, you've probably gotten most of those, but is there one that's still out there sit, sitting and waiting? And the other question would be similar, I guess, in that if there was if there was a subject or person that you could do a podcast and somehow you've, you felt like that might, and and you could get it out to the entire world. All 8 billion people on this planet could hear our podcast. Is, is there a subject and, and a person to talk about that, that you would like to have on that you think could help create that aha, create that switch? Is there somebody, maybe you've already had them on, I don't know. And, and it's just a story that, isn't as broadly talked about? That is a very good question. I'll, I'll go with the first one first. So okay. I think about the 8 billion kind of people. <laughs> it's a big audience. Um, I think for me, like, so yes, I think in terms of like a species or like a topic specific that I w- if we're talking like a specific species, I have an episode coming up, um, which is, to record, um, so hopefully it won't get cancelled or anything, touch wood, um, that I'm going to be recording about the okapi, which is one of my favourite species 
on the face of the earth. I think they're fascinating, beautiful creatures that I think people underestimate and don't know enough about. And, I, and so that is a kind of big one for okay. me. Okay, so, so so describe a no copy. So for everybody listening, because there's probably a lot of people listening mm-hmm. who have no clue what you're talking about. So a no copy is, so if you imagine... So it's so if you imagine a kind of zebra-shaped animal with zebra-type stripes down its bottom and back legs, but those zebra-type stripes transition into kind of a brown kind of horsey shape and then the head of a giraffe, that's kind of the okapi. And it's this, it's kind of, it's found only in one kind of region of, of the world, in Central Africa, um, in this kind of forest. And it is... It was only, it was one of the, it's one of those animals that was only I mean we say discovered it was only discovered by science or described by science very relatively recently and it's it's fascinating they are extremely charismatic they have ridiculously long tongues they have these kind of big round eyes they are very I, th- I won't say they're critically endangered or endangered they're they're just a, a magical inspirational creature which i think more people need to know more about and ex- i like i'm so excited to sit down and talk about them because i want to like i want to know what the because i think when you look online a lot of the time you see the edu- the information you get about okapi is like the classic what's the threats and you get very base level like deforestation and stuff but i want to get into it and kind of know like well what are the reasons behind that what's the what beyond deforestation as a broad concept what's going on there what is the kind of trafficking aspect what are these things i really want to kind of get into that and find out more so that's kind of the okapi and why i'm excited to talk about it um yeah the okapi is and by the way it's o-k-a-p-i for those of you who are scrambling on google in a minute to look it up and see what it looks like Uh, it's it really is it's almost like a dr do little kind of like this you know creature that was put together by extra parts from everything else which i think there's probably some myth about that too with the okapi that it was put together by extra parts um it's you know the platypus of central africa i guess you know all these laying around extra bits and pieces that no one knew what to do with so they built in a copy um that's interesting because that that also the okapi also comes from a part of the world that's very has been a great conservation challenge um that part of the congo eastern congo especially it's been a great conservation challenge over the last well, since I think it's the deadliest place in the world since World War II for humans, um, much less okapis and other species. So, yeah, that will be an interesting story. And yeah, I guess that's the that's the if I could if I could sit everybody down and kind of like have them all listen to a podcast, I guess I don't know who the guest would be and I don't know who is the right person to try and tell people about this. But I really wish the thing that everybody in the world could know and kind of understand and and is that we're all on like people who love nature we're all on the same team we all want the same thing we all need to but what everybody needs to know is that nature impacts us all everything around us is is nature and we're all impacted on a day-to-day basis basis by nature and i think a lot of the time we exist in these silos of like People in the UK view conservation in a very set way. People in um, Europe probably view it in a very set way. People across the world will all view it in this very set and certain way. But I think what we need to do is have some, like if I could get everybody to sit down and listen to a message is that let's start to break down these silos and let's start to understand that 
conservation is an issue that affects us all and it all impacts us in different ways and we all have different priorities and we need to start understanding that it's this kind of people issue more than just a, a nature issue as in this silo it's everybody just needs to kind of yeah th like get together i don't know how it's an, one of those impossible tasks that i think conservation educators and things go through but everybody needs to sit down and realize that yeah we're all on the same team here and everybody's in these different boats and scenarios and things. So whatever metaphor you want to use that's overplayed, we're all in these different situations and we just need to understand each other better because if we understand each other better, the world will be, for both wildlife and people, a much happier, healthier, better place, um, I think. I, I think it's interesting, you know, that conservation is a people problem. I don't know a single species other than us on this planet that needed to create conservation. Yep. Mm -hmm. that's actually a very good way of putting it I'd never heard thought of that before mm -hmm. and like yeah they will always protect themselves and the animals have evolved to protect themselves but as part of a larger system that has functioned well not as part of a larger system that's being chopped down by people that have then gone oh maybe we shouldn't have done that maybe we shouldn't have polluted this or like yeah one last question because we could go on for hours but I, I was wondering about how your podcast and the work that you've done on the podcast has influenced, you said you're at Edinburgh Zoo. Is that right? Yeah. So, and you're doing education work there? So, yeah. So I do like kind of, yeah, education sessions with them um, uh, for kids. So how is your podcasting and the work you've done in the podcasting, how has that influenced, do you think, the education work you do or vice versa? I mean, change change the, your approaches. Mm-hmm. I suppose like that's a really tricky one. I, I I think like looking at it from a distance and kind of taking a step back, I think the way that I kind of approached education, like obviously that side of me came first. And I think that really helped to form the structure of the podcast and the questions I ask and the people I talk to and the, the way that I can, the audience that I kind of pitch to, like I, I do genuinely believe that conservation is for everybody and should be accessible to everybody, whether they step in with a master's degree in biology or whether they step in with no knowledge at all. I think you should be able to enjoy nature and appreciate conservation. And so I think when I went into environments like the zoo or the botanic garden, I think that's always been my attitude of like, let's make sure this is an accessible space for everybody. And that learning kind of carried into the podcast then of kind of like, this space is for everybody. We need to make sure and make it accessible and inclusive for as many people as possible. Um, and I, I and I think, yeah, it, it, it does leave, in my head, there's always more I want to do with the podcast. And if it was more than just me, I'd love to make it more accessible in that way that like I could provide transcripts or something. Like I'd love to really make it as accessible as possible. But at the moment, I just like, with, with no money and the time that I have, that's a limited kind of way of, of doing it. Um, so there is that kind of aspect where I'd like to, I, I kind of went in with it as trying to make it as accessible as possible. And then I guess the podcast, what that fed back into my education work is kind of appreciating that these, like trying to get people to, I guess, grow a love of nature that's around them became a lot more important because I think I was listening to all of these stories from around the world and the reason that the stories were so interesting is because the people were passionate about what was in front of them and was pa were passionate about the kind of animals that were right on their doorstep. And I think I'd always been passionate about kind of wildlife in the UK, but like 
you, when you grow up watching these documentaries and things, you kind of fall in love with things that are far away. And I think by talking to people and seeing their passion for what's in front of them, it kind of made me refocus and be like, actually, there's some really exciting things in front of me here based in the UK as well. So I want to talk more about them and kind of really refocus on that. So I think that's one of the aspects that's kind of fed back. I also think it's kind of fed back this idea in my head that anybody can be like, I think anybody can be a conservationist, no matter whether they're a scientist or a talker or a musician or an author or a blogger or a photographer or a dancer or a, whatever it is or an actor, whatever it is, you could, anyone can be a conservationist. And I think that attitude has been a really good shift for me in terms of my education work, because when you have kids at the zoo who are less interested maybe in the science side, you can get them to create art. Or when you have them at the Botanic Gardens and they're not interested in maybe the science of how a plant grows and you can sit them down and tell them the story of like, well, if you don't like the scientific stuff behind a daffodil, here's the story of Echo and Narcissus from Greek myth. And we'll tell you that and we'll try and engage you in that way. And just trying to think of these creative ways of like, science can be for everybody and it's make, about making everybody realise that conservation and nature and everything can be a part of your life and you can do these things even if you don't necessarily have a scientific mind whatever that concept may be like you can do anyone is can be a conservationist so i think those are the kind of big ways that have it's fed back into into my work on the day-to-day -day as well yeah that's fantastic Jack, we've talked for <laughs> an hour and a half almost here. So it's actually been really, really wonderful to be able to talk to somebody who's trying to do the same thing. You're doing it from a different perspective. You're you're taking different approaches than we are, but we're both after the same thing, I think, in the long run. And I really, really appreciate what you're trying to do. So we just need to find you funding so you can do it more and do it better. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. If anyone out there is listening and wants to buy me like a podcast studio or even just someone to edit the podcast, if you're out there, um, the police, because yeah, I would. I'd love to like, yeah, I'd love to focus on like the interviews more. Like I could put if I could just record these and not have to worry about editing and everything else. I would put out probably 10 a week. Like I, there are that many, going back to the diversity question, there are that many voices out there and that many stories that need to be told. I could pump out 10 of these a week, probably for the next three or four years and still not run out of interesting people to talk to. Like there's so many stories out there and like, yeah, yeah. So if anyone's out there. <laughs> we, we will have in the show notes and on the website, we will have links to, to Jack and everything he's doing. So, um, Young podcast editors who want to build up a resume, uh, get a hold of Jack and start editing his podcast. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey, thank Jack. You. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Let's do this again sometime and, um, and catch up with one another. Okay. Yes. That'd be brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so, so much. It's been fantastic. I want to thank Pangolin podcast host Jack Baker for taking time out of his podcasting schedule to share an hour with us. You'll find links to the Pangolin podcast in our show notes and on our website at talkingapes.org. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of the apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists all get us closer to understanding who we are and why. Because ensuring the survival of the other four great apes is the only way to ensure our own. 
I would like to thank our Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zaban, and lead researcher Megan Lewandowski for all of the behind-the-scenes work they do in making this podcast possible. And I would like to thank you, the donors and Patreon members who make Talking Apes successful through your generous support and the sharing of this podcast. If you appreciate what you hear on Talking Apes, consider supporting us. Log on to our website at talkingapes.org or via the link in the show notes. And finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front line of Great Ape Survival. We hope through Talking Apes, we're able to shine a light on the incredible selfless work you do every single day to ensure great apes, primates, and their forest homes survive and thrive deep into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. For everyone at Talking Apes, thanks for listening.